So they're up there and they see this hand that's sticking out of the glacier. And uh, they're like, oh, they back off and they come and they report it. Well, because it's technically a death and we don't mm-hmm. know how the person died, we had to do a death, death investigation. So we were able to get a uh, helicopter that could take us up to a high altitude. They flew us up there, went and recovered this arm right out of the glacier. And the thing was so perfectly preserved, I was able to get fingerprints off of it. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Y Millbank Podcast Network from Millbank, South Dakota. This is Craig Weinberg. Ymillbank.com is our website. Ymillbank at gmail.com is the email address. If you want to send us a note, just say hi or you want to tell your story. Today on the show, Rodney Dial, the Ketchikan Gateway Borough mayor from Ketchikan, Alaska is here to talk a little bit about Alaska and give us an insight uh, on what what it's like living there, being from there. And how the politicians' decisions down here in the lower 48 directly affect the lives of those up there. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Rodney Dial, the mayor of the Ketchikan Gateway Borough in Alaska. Thank you for joining the show. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, when I, I mean, a friend of mine, uh, Jeremy Bynum, is one of the council members up there. Or uh, what are they called, technically? Uh, assembly uh, person. So he it. could be an assembly man, or but yeah, we just refer okay. him as being on the assembly. Gotcha. Um, I was talking to him like a couple. I grew up with him as we were kids, and then kind of he did his <laughs> career stint in the Air Force, and then um, we connected again nah, a couple years ago, and then we've been in touch a little bit. Uh, but I was talking to him about um, the realities of Alaska and what it means uh, when being a part of the U.S. but being separated, um, and really pretty distinctly. I mean, Alaska it is does it have its own climate? It almost does, right? Well, it really does. And once again, thanks for inviting me on here. I have to start all these things off with a disclaimer that. Everything I might say, it's it's just coming from me as the mayor, but I do not necessarily represent the views of the assembly or speak for the Ketchikan Gateway Borough. So I, I just got to no, kind of no, throw that that's out there. Perfect. But, uh, that's awesome. Thank you for that clarity, because I, I do want to make sure that we don't have any. I'm just trying to keep myself out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, to get to your question about the climate, um, you know, we live in southeast Alaska. We're close to the Canadian border. Um the weather is close to Seattle weather, if you know what that is. Yep. It's rainy. We're, you know, a rainforest down here. In fact, uh, been told we're like the fifth wettest spot on Earth. So we get really? like 15 feet of rain a year. It's a lot. Whoa, say that again. What? 15 about feet? 15 feet of rain. Wow. Yeah. About, uh, about two-thirds of the homes on this island have a water catchment system. My house has one. We never run out. I've never run out ever that's how much rain we get we just use water like normal but but we get all our water off the just the rain so you don't have a water like department 
you know, there's a couple on the island, but that's more for like the city, certain areas of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, areas outside the city, for the most part, are just on a rain range, a rain catchment system. Wow, that's crazy. It's um, awesome. The water is perfect. I oh. mean, it's not treated. It's super soft. <laughs> I but, bet. Uh, yeah, no water bill. So, I mean, that's different from some of the southern states that uh, make it somewhat of a crime to collect rainwater. <laughs> so, a little different yeah. up there. You are a native Alaskan, correct? Yep. Born and raised. Been Families lived here for generations. Uh, yep, we love it here. Where at in Alaska? Uh, well, I've, I've lived in every geographical region of the state. At one point earlier in my career, I was Alaska State Trooper, and I did that for 25 years. So. Throughout oh. my career, I was uh, transferred multiple times. So I've lived in the interior, South Central, uh, worked on the Aleutian. Um, I've been up in the North Slope and currently I'm in Southeast. So Okay. So a- as a state trooper, do you get like the, the um, assignments in different parts of the state or do you just kind of roam around? How does that work? So once you're hired on as an Alaska State Trooper, they they tell you you're guaranteed your first two years at your first assignment. After that, you're expected to move. Mm-hmm. And so you tend to move just like in the military every couple of years. And uh, I wound up doing seven geographical relocations throughout my career. Um, and then when you're in those regions, you serve all the communities in that region. So it, it gave me an opportunity to to visit pretty much all of the 361 communities in the state. So it was a great time to kind of go see Alaska. All right. So here's the big question. Which which is the best? Oh, Ketchikan <laughs> by far. That's why I'm living here. Yeah, I uh, Ketchikan was my last transfer. Mm-hmm. It was uh, my second transfer and my last transfer. I, I came here early in my career, and then I, I loved it so much I had to come back, and I just retired here. And it's a, it's a great place to live. Good people. That's very cool. Uh, so you've been there for a while. You've been able to see the, um, the, the times change over the last few decades. Um, what has been the biggest, um, I, I guess the biggest change that you've noticed over the last 30, 40 years that you've been paying attention? You know, I, I can remember growing up as a kid in Alaska and everything was years behind the lower 48. Even our TV shows were at least two weeks behind whenever you would get them in the lower 48. Movies were sometimes months behind. So over the decades, what I've really noticed is we've kind of caught up to the technology of the lower 48. And and now it's not, you know, we don't have to have a two-week delay before you get the same TV show. Uh, <laughs> So that is that's that's been nice. Um, you know, as far as statistics like crime and homelessness and all that, we still tend to be a couple of years behind the lower 48. Um, but so I, I guess that would be the biggest change I've noticed. Oil is a big part of the Alaskan economy and, you know, what what Alaska is known for, at least from down here, the perspective that we have. Is it as big a part when you're there? Like, it, is it just an industry that's just built in you know um years ago oil uh was such a big thing it it, it, especially during the pipeline days Mm -hmm. we had tens of thousands of people here for those years that the pipeline was under construction um 
nowadays it's not as big of a part of the of the state. It only provides a small portion of the economy anymore. Uh, tourism is actually our one of our largest really? sectors of the economy. Um, and then, of course, oil prices aren't as high as they have been in the past. Mm-hmm. So as those oil prices have declined, I mean, revenues to the state have declined as well. And mm-hmm. right now we're kind of in that quandary where the uh, current administration in D.C. has uh, cut back a lot of the opportunities for oil and gas exploration in the state and it's going to impact our economy but so not as big as it used to be but mm-hmm. it's still important so thinking about that you know the the lower 48 you know we we look at ourselves as the you know there's we're it there's nothing else that matters uh alaska kind of gets in hawaii a little bit kind of gets forgotten for the most part by at least the the citizens down here because it's easy uh, it's you know it's not part of the map as we typically look at it. Um, what does it do when you have administrations in D.C. change that are so drastically different in approach to what Alaska is and what happens up there? What does it do to the to you guys? Well, it really messes up our budgets for one. It uh, stymies our ability to get people into good paying jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, these a lot of these oil projects, major projects, take sometimes decades to to bring to completion. And so, when you have one administration that's real positive, for example, the previous administration was going to allow us to build roads in the Tongass National Forest mm-hmm. again, and now this current administration has recently come out with uh, changes to the roadless rule, which will shut that down. So, I mean, it's just about the time you think you're going to get sawmills going again and, you know, some economic opportunities started and another administration comes along and kind of wants to turn Alaska back into a big, you know, big national park, park. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's it makes long-term planning difficult. So does it, from your perspective and you being Alaskans from the perspective up there, does it feel like, that you just get to be a pawn thrown about at, to, at the whim of the politicians down here? It kind of feels like because we are a big state with a small population, mm-hmm. that we really don't have the influence to change the narrative, I guess. And, and that's the problem. So, you know, a new administration comes in and, and you know, they're real pro environment and, you know, certain industries might have a, an appearance of being damaging to the environment. So then everything changes. And Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, it's just, it's, it's frustrating in that, you know, if we, if we could get some of those politicians up here to actually take a look at the places where we're drilling for oil or where we're mining, uh, I think most of them would say, you know, that's pretty remote location and and safeguards are in place. It's not the quite the environmental catastrophe that's been portrayed and, you know, maybe we could change some some opinions, but it's just it's real. It's frustrating. I mean, because without resource development, it's going to be very hard for this state to pay its bills long term. And, and that's kind of the problem that we're having right now. We've been in a state fiscal crisis now for about seven, eight years, and, and it's we still haven't resolved it. So. Is, is that directly tied to decisions made in Washington? 
Well, a good part of it is, I mean, for years, we, in addition to the Trans-Alaska pipeline, which takes the oil from the North Slope all the way down mm -hmm. to Valdez, where it's put on tankers and then shipped out, uh, politicians have tried to get a gas line going from the North Slope as well. There's trillions upon trillions of cubic feet of natural gas up there. And it's a lot of it's in the same fields where they've been pulling the oil out for decades. Mm -hmm. So all we really need is a pipeline you know, just a pipeline and it can go along the same route as the old pipeline. And, and, but you'd be surprised at how difficult that is convincing people that that somehow won't cause environmental damage. And then some people just oppose it because they say, well, you know, it's a fossil fuel mm -hmm. um, and we're going to oppose all fossil fuels. So those are, you know, we've got all these resources in Alaska. In fact, I've got, a, I was contacted today by a company that's looking to, uh, develop a rare earth mine over on a nearby island and it's one of the few remaining deposits in the united states and so it's just you know we're trying to develop our resources because that's the way we pay our bills that's the way we keep people employed that's the way people can afford to live here mm -hmm. um, and we can do it responsibly and so that's that's kind of our challenge right now in south dakota we had um you know we had the keystone xl pipeline being constructed and that was, you know, a big, big deal. And there's a lot of controversy around it locally, you know, in, in the state. But then, you know, the Biden administration comes in and just, you know, puts a stop to where they're at. And they're mid-project. Um, right. I can totally see how that, especially up there where you guys are too, how do you long-term plan when an elected politician can come in and just turn it on or turn it off? How do you ever plan for anything? It, it just it makes it difficult and it makes it more difficult for the companies that are really trying to do business in mm -hmm. Alaska. So a lot of them, out of sheer frustration, just simply go to countries where there's less regulations and, and more of an ability to you know plan long term. I mm -hmm. mean, we have to be in a market where we can pull the resource and stay competitive in a very expensive environment. You know, working on the North Slope, it's it's expensive just even to, to put a road in up there. They usually have to do it in the winter when it's an ice road so that, you know, they can work in the winter, but then in the summer, the road's gone. So it's, it's very hard to plan. And as a result, the state budget is suffering uh, because, you know, the state's forecasting that oil is going to be at a certain point, that oil production will be at a certain point. And, uh, you know, it's just estimates at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, things change on almost a yearly basis, it seems. What's the largest division of tourism that you guys see? Uh, so in Southeast, the largest division of tourism is uh, cruise ship passengers. Mm. Uh, we, here in Ketchikan, we've gone from, you know, a decade or so ago, a few thousand all the way up to over a million right prior to the pandemic. I was going to say 2020 and, must have just destroyed your economy. We wound up with, I think, the official number of cruise ship passengers in 2020 was like 40 people. It was, oh my. It, was, it was less than 100, and it was only on super small boats. All the big boats were, you know, uh, canceled. Wow. So, you know, we're hoping, we're expecting, uh, you know, our first actual regular cruise ship here in the next few days. Hmm. Uh, hoping that we get it back. We need to. It's a huge driver of the economy. That is nuts. I, I, I knew it was a cruise hub. I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah, there's only a, 
you know, it's only a borough of about 13, 14,000 people. Mm -hmm. So when you have um, over a million cruise passengers wow. come to a town of 13,000 people, <laughs> uh, it's a major impact. Yeah. Um, this town is so busy in the summer. It's crazy. So it, it, uh, is, but, it, is it only during a few months or is it a year-round product? You know, it, it keeps changing and it looks like the season's being extended right now. But generally it starts around May and, and goes to, you know, September, October. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we may see that extended a little bit this year, especially since cruising kind of got a late start. Yeah. And I say late start because we really only had one cruise ship and it was a test cruise from Anchorage. It was the Serenity of the Seas was the vessel name. And it had mostly employees on it, but they came to Ketchikan a few weeks ago. It was successful. And now here within a few days, we're expecting our first actual regular cruise ship again after a year and a half. Um, and we're hopeful, you know, we're hopeful. We, we know that we're likely to get some COVID uh, positive cases on these cruise vessels, even among the vaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we see that the vaccinated yeah. are getting COVID just like the unvaccinated almost. Um, so we're hopeful. I mean, we need to get them back. We want people to come back and visit our town. I can tell you that independent travelers right now, the people that are coming in going to the fishing lodges, people that are just coming in on the planes, it's almost at the pre-pandemic levels right now. We're, we're seeing our hotels are full. I was at a lodge yesterday. It's, it's full. So uh, that part is good. We just got to get the cruise ship passengers back. And, and that's just going to be a matter of time, I presume, right? Well, we're hopeful, right? I mean, <laughs> and it's that uncertainty, right? In, in, you know, in 2019, we were expecting a record year in 2020. Mm-hmm. In 2020, we were expecting to get cruise sailings back by May of 21. And now, I mean, we're hopeful we're going to get cruising back. But, you know, we keep hearing about cases are exploding, new variants. Uh, the vaccinated aren't quite as protected as they used to be. I mean, there's all these different factors. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we wind up with big outbreaks on cruise ships, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. So. We're, we're hopeful and, you know, we're really pushing for that, but hard to say. What has the reality television show done for Alaska? Well, you know, some of it is pretty fake, I guess. That's the best way to put it. Ooh, um, what do you mean? Like totally staged? Yeah. What was that? Uh, what was that reality show that had the, the, the people that were living down here in Southeast Alaska? Um, Man, I wish I could remember. Was it the name. homesteading ones that they went out and lived on the wild? Um, oh um, well, there was one. It was about a family, and uh, they, one of them got dental problems. They came to catch a can. I wish I could remember the name of that. Um, anyway, I mean, some of them are, are, I wouldn't say staged, but they're pretty scripted <laughs> in that... Um, you know, they take these families and they put them in these in environments and you're really kind of seeing part of the part of mm -hmm. the picture there. Uh, you know, I used to deal with that a lot as a state trooper. People would read a magazine like, you know, Mother Earth News, and they would think they could come live off the land in Alaska. And it's not quite that easy, especially, you know, when you're up in interior Alaska mm -hmm. and it's 50 below. Um that's not a real easy place to live if you don't have money and a lot of resources. So 
I think some of it's a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, you know, there's some places in Alaska that are just as modern as the lower 48. And then there's a lot of rural communities that you're going to need a lot of money to live there um, just because everything is so expensive. Oh, that's just because of the, the remoteness of where they're at, just getting it in. Yeah. I mean, I, I here in Ketchikan, I had a box mailed to me uh, from a company that only ships FedEx, you know, it's about this big. Mm-hmm. This last week, and it cost me over fifty dollars. Whoa! To the mail. So, <laughs> you know, there's some things up here like mail. It's mm-hmm. still very expensive. Amazon Prime delivery is not what it is in LA. I can tell you that. But yeah, um, forty-five minutes down there. <clears throat> yeah, our food is more expensive, but yeah. you know, we do have some opportunities too to go out and and you know get some salmon or harvest things. So it's kind of a trade-off, I guess. It's the best way to put it, but. Uh, yeah, it's not reality TV. I mean, you have to come experience it for yourself. I think it's not quite yeah. accurate. Fishing, a big industry up there? Fishing is real big in Ketchikan. We're, we used to be called the salmon capital of the world. Really? Uh, we've got uh, well over 100 years uh, on the books as a salmon processing community. All wild, uh, or are there farms up there? No, it's all wild. Um uh, fish farming in Alaska. I don't. Last I was where it's really not allowed. Oh, really? They don't want. They don't want um, farmed fish to mingle with the native stocks mm. and kind of dilute that. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, so it's it's still pretty pristine up here. We have started some seafood farms. Uh, there is an oyster farm in Ketchikan, which produces the best oysters I've ever had in my life. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, the water is so cold here that uh, natural oysters won't live they won't breed so what this company does is they bring in uh, seed stock from uh, hawaii and then they grow the oyster here but it produces a little different flavor and it is the is freshest oyster oh it's so incredible it's so fresh um and we can get them down here for 50 cents each. oh my <laughs> So I got a, I got a dozen in my fridge right now, but Whatever. they're really good. Yeah, they're <laughs> awesome. But we've got that going on. So we got seafood, we got oysters, we got uh, a lot of crab down here. But it's mostly dungeon uh, dungeon right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, dive fisheries. So okay, what's something that uh, most people wouldn't know about uh, Ketchikan that they should know about? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I probably all of what I just said, you know, from um, being a huge tourism hub with only 13,000 people to being in Southeast Alaska to the fact that we produce a lot of a lot of seafood down here, um, dive fisheries, um, just uh, just a working mm-hmm. community, hardworking people. So <laughs> thinking of your time as a as a trooper. You must have seen some crazy things over the years. <laughs> um, anything like wild? Uh, of course, the crazy people want to know if there's Bigfoot up there, but uh, in any actual like crazy story? Oh, yeah. I, I've had a bunch over the years. At uh, one point, I was stationed in a community called Glen Allen, which is uh, about halfway between Anchorage and Fairbanks, if you kind of know where that's yep. on the map. Mm-hmm. And so in, uh, the Denali National Park was, is in the middle of that, correct? Kind of. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Uh, that region. 
So back in, I think it was the uh, early 50s, there was a uh, there was an aircraft that contained a bunch of merchant mariners and they crashed into this really high mountain peak there in the Wrangell St. Elias uh, Park. Uh, so high at the time that they couldn't go up and get it, but all the people on the ground saw the explosion and and it was a very clear night. There was a lot of uh, northern lights out and most people thought that maybe the pilot got distracted because the northern lights were so beautiful that night mm-hmm. that he actually crashed into this mountain. Well, anyway, it, it landed on a glacier and over about 50 years, that glacier pushed it down to a level where some explorers had, they flew in with a small plane and they did this hike and they got up on the mountain and they got to the glacier and they saw this debris field that was starting to get pushed out of this glacier after 50 years. So they're up there and they see this hand that's sticking out of the glacier. And uh, they're like, oh, they back off and they come and they report it. Well, because it's technically a death and we don't mm-hmm. know how the person died, we had to do a death, death investigation. So we are able to get a uh, helicopter that could take us up to a high altitude. They flew us up there, went and recovered this arm right out of a glacier. And the thing was so perfectly preserved, I was able to get fingerprints off of it. Really? 50 50 uh, years old? Digging around. Oh, yeah. We we were digging around. I found a ring from, it was an Iranian ring from one of the merchant mariners. And so uh, it was just a really cool story. In fact, uh, these explorers wrote a book about it, about about how they not only located the crash site, how Mm -hmm. these things started coming out of the glacier, how we got the arm and and they eventually, I think, were able to trace it through military records to identify it, or at least narrow it down to a certain person. But uh, certainly, that was one of the more interesting things I got to do over my career. That's crazy. 1948, it crashed. <clears throat> yeah. Huh. Pretty cool flight. That's wild. So it just, over time, it just walked its way down the mountain in, in the in the ice? Yeah, it was, it's, it was really a surreal uh, place. I mean... We got up there and there was a, uh, the debris field at the time was about a mile mm-hmm. in diameter. And so engines were coming out, luggage was coming out, silverware from the, you know, utensils. I mean, uh, it, it's just weird how, you know, that it was all preserved in the glacier. And every year it comes down just a little bit farther. And it's, you know, I'm sure that if we went up there today, we'd still see some being yeah. out of there. It's just so hard to reach. It's out of reach for you know, almost everybody, but hmm. um, a lot of interesting things like that around That's Alaska. That's crazy, yeah. Do you have kids? You have family? Got a couple. Got a couple kids. Uh, a wife. Uh, um, she works for the district attorney's office, and uh, she so she's still kind of in the criminal justice field. Um, got one uh, son living in the lower forty-eight, and a daughter that lives up here does tattoos. So yeah. Nice. So what's the conversation as a, as a parent, Alaskan parent with your kids about coming back or, you know, leaving Alaska, you know, making this their long-term home? What is that conversation like? Is it kind of open, you know, go explore and come back or how does that look? Uh, Well, the one thing that we're really trying to do is we're trying to keep Alaskan and an affordable place for the young people to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the problems that we're seeing is um, it's still super expensive to live here. It kind of gets more expensive over time just because 
you know, shipping things here. Uh, when, when lumber goes up real, real high in most of the country, it affects us even worse, right? Because it, I mean, we have to not only pay that extra price for the lumber, but price to ship it here, you know, and the shipping's getting ridiculous. So we're trying to keep our community affordable so young people can afford to live here. Mm-hmm. And we find that a lot of them, when they go away to college, if they, you know, leave the state, um, they really appreciate the qualities about Alaska and, and will come back here. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, my, my daughter loves it here. Like I said, she's, she's got a little tattoo shop that she runs. Um, I think she's going to stay here forever. <laughs> when, uh, you know, my kids were born here, of course. So when they left, went down to places like Seattle, it was like a culture shock for them. And they're like, mm-hmm. uh, I want to go home. Yeah. It feels safer there. So, right. So, yeah, I mean, we, we do everything we can to keep our young people here. That's cool. Sure. How long have you been mayor? So I'm almost almost three years into it. I was on the assembly uh, prior to getting elected as a mayor. So I've got uh, a little over five years service now. What, how does it uh, stack up to other um, towns, cities in Alaska, size-wise, uh are you guys, I thought I saw something, you're like the second largest. Is that right? So uh, I think we're right now, we're right about fifth largest, somewhere okay. around in there. You know, Anchorage is obviously the big, mm-hmm. big city. So you've got Anchorage, you've got Fairbanks, you've got the Matsu area, which is right outside of Anchorage, which is really big. You've got some big places on the Kenai Peninsula. Juno's larger than we are. So we're we're down in there somewhere around five six okay uh, in the list. Are you guys the best? <laughs> are you the best tourist stop? I would think <laughs> you know you you gotta you gotta market your your town that you work yeah. for for sure. Well, but uh, you know we've got some just some incredible scenery down here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Misty Fjords National Monuments down here. Uh, so people can on the cruise ships, they come on the inside passage, they get to see all of that. Uh, you know, a lot of a, a lot of the inner waterways, you'll you'll go and you'll not see a single building, a single house, anything. It's pretty much undeveloped. So if you want to see real Alaska, I mean, it's easy to do. Mm-hmm. There's eagles everywhere here. Um, whales right now are out feeding. Saw a couple oh, whales cool. yesterday. So uh, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It's definitely worth taking a cruise up the inside passage, or you could even catch the Alaska Marine Highway System, their ferry in Bellingham, and you can come up and just take the ferry up. Uh, it takes about three days to get here, get here from Washington. But okay. Yeah. But going through Canada is not, well, you can't right now, I don't think, can you? You, you can't. Um, unless you're deemed an essential employee, you can't, or you have some really good... Mm reason to go through Canada. They'll turn okay. you back at the border. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is kind of a bummer because uh, Seattle, or, uh, Canada, a uh, little town called Prince Rupert, mm-hmm. is our closest point to get on the road system. So we oh, can get yeah. on a ferry here, mm-hmm. and then in about eight hours, we could get to Prince Rupert, and then once we're in Prince Rupert, we're on the road system, and we can actually you know, drive down to a the lower 48 but um ever since the pandemic hit canada has been closed so that access point has kind of been denied to us so now really the only thing we can do 
is uh, go down to Bellingham on the ferry. The, the long way. Yeah, get on the road system mm-hmm. that way. But it's pretty expensive. So. Wow. Or or air travel, right? Like if you air want to travel. go that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, are <clears throat> are we running out of ice in Alaska? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, uh, southeast, like I said, it's pretty warm. It's kind of like Seattle. It's mm-hmm. the banana belt of Alaska. But once you start going north of southeast Alaska, I mean, the winters get pretty cold. Really? Um, I worked in a bunch of them. And like I said, I mean, it's not uncommon in interior Alaska to have 40, 50 below days in the winter. And so there's still plenty of ice up there for wow. sure. Are you in a part of the Alaska where it's uh, you have times of mostly dark and then mostly light, or are you too far south for not, that? Not so, not so bad. Uh, in the middle of the winter, probably at its worst, around December, right before the you know uh, days start growing longer again, mm-hmm. it'll it'll get dark around two thirty in the afternoon. Or so <laughs> wow, you know, uh, but we never experienced what they do farther north where they just go you know three months or so without any sun at all um, we don't have to deal with that fortunately that would be nuts <clears throat> probably be fun to see for a couple of days but living in it full-time might be <laughs> well were you it's, ever were you ever up there and stationed as a trooper so at one point i was stationed in fairbanks and then i would uh, travel that we we call it the hall road which is the road that goes from fairbanks all the way up to the north slope up mm. to prudhoe and mm-hmm. And uh, anything above the Arctic Circle up there, you know, it's just almost dark. Yeah. You know, for months in the winter. And it, it's depressing, I mean, because it's super cold out, then it's super dark out. And so you're stuck in the house most of the time. And um, I didn't like it up there. I, I like it down here because even in, in the winter, I could actually get outside and work if I wanted to do something outside. Yeah. So I do appreciate the milder climate here in Southeast, but. So do you yeah. see a decent amount of um, emotional trauma, maybe uh, depression up in that area? I would say up North, especially mm-hmm. they call it seasonal affective disorder. And you notice it a lot in the people. Um, it's real common in the winter. Like I said, especially you go to smaller villages, um, on the coldest parts of the winter, it's the darkest and there's nothing really to do. And right. so everybody just is inside the house all the time. And you'll see a lot of alcoholism and substance abuse issues, a lot of domestic violence, suicide, uh, sexual assault. So those are the problems that you really see as a trooper in those communities. And it's it's depressing. Um, and it's directly, pretty much directly tied or you can tie it to just the, the climate a little bit or the, you know, the, the, uh, season, I guess. I, I think that the season and the climate intensify it, yeah. but you, know, you also have high unemployment. You've got, uh, you know, we've got 150 communities roughly where the unemployment rate exceeds 80%. So there, how, I mean, it, I, well, you know, so you've got a lot of just really, really small communities. A lot of them are predominantly native communities mm-hmm. and, there's just not a lot of economic opportunities in those places. It's so incredibly expensive to um, to ship anything there that you really can't manufacture anything. 
thing. So those communities, that's why it's so important for resource development, because if that if those little tiny communities can participate in a mine or mm-hmm. participate in salmon fishery or something like that, they have the ability to generate revenue. But absent that, there's just really not a lot of jobs up there. And so you have a lot of poverty, you have high unemployment, you have high crime, you know, and then you throw in all the seasonal issues with that. And it's just, it's a real negative mix. And What's uh, the answer for that kind of a, of a reality? Because I mean, if you consider a huge majority of the people don't have the ability to, to make a living, um, what do they do? Do they just commit crime or are there some community resources to help them? Well, traditionally, a lot of those communities were subsistence communities mm. where they would, you know, be involved in the gathering of resources. And yep. It's it, it's changed, though, that that's changed over the years. And so what you really see is our congressional delegation and our governor, our, our state legislature, they're really trying to improve the economic opportunities for those regions. So there's one region up by a place called Kotzebue, for example, where the Native Corporation went in and uh, they partnered and opened up this big zinc deposit mine called Red Dog. And Red Dog really transformed that whole region. It allowed that region to form its own government, its own borough, and it, it brings them in revenue in which they can use to provide services and, and it provides jobs. So you know, one large mine like that could really transform a region. So mm-hmm. what you're really trying to do now is we're trying to develop that economic opportunity for people to um, have a good paying job. And, you know, and, you know, and they say, they used to tell us in the troopers, a job will solve a thousand social problems. And you can really see that to be true because yeah. if you're working out all day at a hard job mining zinc, you come home, you're not, you're not really going to feel like getting into a big argument, right. fighting with your family. And, you know, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of benefits to that kind of approach. But once again, there's very few roads in the state. We've got a lot of these communities are not connected to each other. The only way you can get into them is by a plane or a boat sometimes. Is and, that what uh, keeps people there? Because they just can't leave? You know, I think in those smaller towns, it's more a generational thing. Mm-hmm. Their families have just lived there forever, mm-hmm. and that's all they know. Um, you, know you know, I know they love their community, so they want to stay, and, and that's certainly understandable. Um, I do notice, though, when, when outsiders come up, I saw this a lot as Trooper, when outsiders would come up, it's, it's such a culture shock usually for people that are used to all the amenities that you would get in, like, a city in the States and stuff like that. A lot of them don't stay more than about five years. Right. Um, you know, we get a huge turnover um, every year. About 50,000 people move into Alaska. About 50,000 people move out of Alaska. Wow. And uh, so those small villages, you know, they, they, their population levels really aren't changing that much. They're pretty much stagnant. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of just been that way huh. forever. I had no idea it was like that. You've uh, opened my eyes certainly to... <laughs> Well, some of the good. I, I would love to tour up there. I've, I've been to uh, Fairbanks and North Pole about, about 
15, almost 15 years ago um, with my job as a photographer. I went up there and it was cool. I got to see some, um, you know, the place I went down to Denali and went through that a little bit. And that was, it's beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, but I was in the tiny fraction of the state um, where there were people. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, and I'd love to get up there though, but that's awesome. I, uh, I appreciate your insights very much. And yeah, we'd love to have you here. If you want to come visit catch can, you just let me know. And- well, I'll just call Jeremy. I'll stay with him. We'll roll out <laughs> we'll the get red there. carpet. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Jeremy's, Jeremy's a good guy. He's Mr. Research on the uh, assembly. He does his research. Interesting. Excellent. Well, perfect. Rodney, I appreciate your time so much. I don't want to abuse you too much and keep you too long, but thank you for giving us a little time and explaining some things for me. I appreciate it. You bet. I awesome. enjoyed your program and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Is there uh, any uh, interweb uh, website, social media you would like to plug at all for either the state, your town, uh, you? Do you do like a YouTube channel, anything crazy? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, if people want to find out more about Ketchikan, you can go to the uh, Ketchikan Gateway Borough website. Uh, just type in Ketchikan Gateway Borough into Google. It'll come right up, awesome. and uh, it'll tell you a little bit about the community. And then if, if you want a great trip, uh, take a cruise, or better yet, I mean, Alaska State Ferry goes right to Bellingham, Washington. You can hop on board as a passenger and uh, get a three-day trip up here, and it's, it's a great trip. You'll and- enjoy it. And that's a um, just a regular ferry that goes be, just goes between the two cities. Yeah, it'll actually go all the way up through Southeast, so you don't have to. Oh, really? Stay in Ketchikan. You can start in Bellingham. You can go to Ketchikan. You mm-hmm. can go to Juneau, Sitka. You can go to all the towns in Southeast if you want to. And you know, it's a. Uh, they even let you throw a can- uh, tent up on the on the deck of the ferry there, and you can sleep in the. Uh, arboretum if you want so you really don't have to get a room or anything like that you can just walk mm-hmm. on the ferry and there's uh it's a great little adventure that's uh, cool so there's a lot of different ways to come to catch can and there's so much to see in southeast and and we're still uh, a pretty uh remote pristine part of america so if you want to kind of get out of the hustle and bustle of the city life you can come experience some peace and solitude here in southeast alaska that'd be awesome um <clears throat> How often do you guys have moose and bear around town? Or so, are they farther so, away? Yeah, so here in Ketchikan, we don't have any moose. We have a lot of black bear. We see those almost daily. Mm. Uh, a lot of deer. Uh, like I said, I've seen whales just yesterday. Um, eagles almost every day. So that's kind of, that's kind of the wildlife that you'll mm-hmm. see here in southeast. Now, once you get to the mainland... There you'll see the brown bears and some of the larger game animals like caribou and moose and things yep. like that. But, you know, we're an island, so we don't have a lot of those big game. Cool. Well, thank you, Rodney. Rodney Dial, I appreciate your time. Um, have a great uh, afternoon, and we'll hopefully talk again. All right. Hey, Perfect. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the interview and thank you Rodney Dial for taking some time out of your day appreciate your insights
ymillblink.com is our website. If you want to find out more, help support the show, go there, click on the podcast button, and there's a donate option. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you on the next one. Have a wonderful day and stay safe.